Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about the things we learned starting schools and how they apply or might apply to the rest of our lives. My guests today are my kids, Caden and Maya Lamov. They are both college students and they joined me six weeks ago to critique my parenting for me. They were wickedly funny, very insightful and practically viral in their critique of decisions that my wife and I made in raising them. Now they're off to college. And one of the things I thought would be fascinating to talk about was grading and meritocracy and how you get rewarded for the work that you do in high school and college. We hear a lot about how stressful grading students is or whether there should be an SAT and whether grade inflation is an issue. That's something I've written about recently. So I thought it'd be interesting to get a student perspective. And here's what Caden and Maya had to say. So without further ado, a conversation about grading, testing, and meritocracy with my kids, Caden and Maya Lamov. So uh, Caden and Maya, welcome. Thank you for having us back. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, excited to be back. All right. So first of all, let's just let's talk a little bit about grading, the grades you get. You know, you've spent many years being graded, four years in high school, four years now in college, Caden for you, two for you, Maya. What do you think about the way that teachers grade you or the things that teachers misunderstand about grading? Maya, do you want to kick us off on that one? Yeah, I think it's interesting in comparing high school and college. It's definitely not what I expected. Now that I am in college, I feel like I was warned by high school teachers it would be a lot more all business, I guess. And there actually is a lot of, I mean, like some of the classes here have, it's called like contract for B. What does that mean contract for B? So you sign a contract at the beginning of the course. And it's like, if you do all these basics, you will get a B in my course. And you only get lower than that if you break the contract. So there's like a guaranteed minimum. That seems to be different from what you said, which is it's all business, but that doesn't... That, that's what I mean. I feel like my expectations coming in were a lot different than what I found. Mm, you thought the grading would be harder in college, but it's actually easier. That was like people's expectations coming. That was what I was told in high school and everything. Yeah. Same for you, Caden? Yeah, I might have a little bit of a different perspective on it. I, I think that in high school, you don't really have an option for the teachers that you take courses with and the courses that you take. So you're kind of stuck with... A dichotomy. Is this teacher going to be a hard grader? Is this teacher going to be an easy grader? And in college, because you have so much more choice over what you take, it can be easier if you choose to be this type of student to pick the professors that you know are the easiest and you know grade the easiest as a way to boost your grades. Whether it's, oh, I'm going to take one course like this a semester and it's going to really help my GPA, or it's, I'm going to get through college in the easiest possible way that I can, which I think is just a little bit different from what it's like in high school. I think it's kind of fascinating that whenever you talk about choice, you're really also talking about supply and demand. The average grade given in a college course is an A now. And I'm just curious as to whether you think there are professors, you've had professors, you know of professors who deliberately or unconsciously decide, oh, I'm going to make grading really easy. That will make more people want to take my class. You know, that obviously has professional implications for, for professors. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that definitely comes into play. I wish the average course grade of an A was a little bit more applicable in my college career. But <laughs> yes, I, I definitely think there are some professors at any school that want their course to be rigorous and take that into account when they're building their coursing and their grading policies. And there are some professors who just want to ride it out and have people enjoy their course and feel like they're good and nice people. And I think that the best thing you can find is a professor who's both rigorous and creates a course that's enjoyable. But sometimes that's not all that often. Those are definitely the best people to look for. Maya, do you want to weigh in on that? And possibly what other like incentives for teachers to be like, if you were a really demanding grader as a professor, what would happen? Would fewer people take your class? Yeah, I mean, I think so. There's definitely 
Some teachers definitely have reputations around campus for being harsh graders. It's also just, I think you get more backlash, more feedback after like exams or papers from the students. So probably ends up being more work for them. But I think one of the things I wanted to talk about is Maya, you and I have had several conversations where I think you've had professors say things to you like, it's not going to be graded. It's all going to be group projects. The professor sort of intimated that the grading was going to be easy. And that hasn't always been music to your ears. Right. So we talked about this a lot last year because I had a course that didn't give out number grades until or letter grades until the midterm and final mark. And we were graded on like the check, check plus, check minus system. And yeah, that bothered me because I like I definitely like to know where I stand throughout the year and I like things that are less subjective. But I also think it diminishes the outliers who like are working harder if everybody's kind of in the same boat. Kidney, any thoughts there? Yeah, I think that we're a lot of like systems of grading in school are moving away from meritocracy. You may be uh, happy to know that I actually did read um, your article that came out last week. And I know you mentioned you mentioned kind of a, a shift in American education away from meritocracy and more towards kind of a holistic, everyone's on the right track type of approach. And I think that I think that hurts all students as a whole. It hurts the weaker students who feel like they are on track when they maybe should feel like they're a little bit behind. It hurts the stronger students who either don't get the recognition that they deserve or kind of just become complacent because it's so easy for them to just float along as uh, top performers. And I think it hurts just school systems generally because we're losing, there's no competitive edge. And and oftentimes you just lose like all standards within classrooms and it just becomes submit whatever you want. Your grade will be within this small bubble of good to really good. And there's no incentive for anyone to work harder or submit work that they're proud of or submit work that means anything to them. So one of, I think one of the arguments that I tried to make in the article was that grade inflation is also grade conflation, which is grades get closer and closer. It's hard to distinguish the people who really do exceptional work. And that makes it feel a little bit like a lottery. One of the major points of evaluation in your lives has been applying to colleges. Did you feel like who got in or how grades were evaluated was a little bit of a lottery? Like, did it feel logical to you and meritocratic or did it feel more random? Yeah, I think something that I know you also mentioned is... Like we've lost the SAT and the ACT as the primary recorder of success in high school and the primary reasoning behind college admission. I think my college application was kind of right at the beginning of that process. And I, it was just interesting to see kind of the variation in test scores and, and that comparison between test scores and GPA and the courses that you took. And it didn't always seem like it aligned in terms of the admission process and that so much emphasis is put on are you the president of this club? Are you doing this? What are you doing outside of the classroom? When in reality, in my opinion, the most important thing is what you're doing in the classroom. So I definitely think, I I mean, I don't think the college admission process is purely meritocratic or has ever really been, but I think that we're probably moving further and further away from that than we have in the past. Maya, you want to weigh in? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with everything Kate said. I don't know if I have too much like specifically to add, but I feel like I had a similar experience, even though I was applying two to three years after the hymn, where like that was more standard, the test optional, especially after COVID. I mean, it's interesting. You, you guys only applied two to three years apart, but the SAT was expected for Caden and not expected when you applied. And I would say even like now that I'm here and have talked to a lot of other people that applied in the same pool as me, it was... I mean, I still took the SAT twice and it was optional to submit, but most people still took it and then decided if they wanted to submit. But 
Um, I have a lot of friends here who like were, are from different areas and they were just, they didn't take it at all. They were all told it's, you're not going to use it. Don't even bother. Um, it wasn't even offered in some places. So that was definitely a difference with, it wasn't even like mainstream in a lot of places. Interesting. Have you ever been aware of a time when the way that you were graded affected your behavior in class where you're like, oh, I'm not going to work as hard or, oh, I'm going to work harder because of the way a teacher or professor was grading you? Yeah, I think every situation like that has probably affected the way that I work. I think I tend to do like better and stay more engaged, obviously in classes that have higher standards, but it's difficult even if, even as someone who like, I consider myself to be a hardworking and passionate student, but when you lose standards, you just lose, there's no incentive to put in your very best when 60% of your best gets you the same grade as hundred percent of your best would get you. So whether that, whether that makes you a worse student by taking advantage of that system. I don't, I don't know if I would necessarily say that I take advantage of systems like that on purpose, but I, I also don't think I would necessarily fault people who did because we're basically creating a system where there is no incentive to do better than the bare minimum. You don't set out to react to the incentives, but in the end you do. Maya, do you want to weigh in there? Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's not necessarily intentional, but when everything's a trade-off and say I have two exams coming up, one of them is going to be traditional individual exam and one of my harder classes and one's going to be, a say, like a group exam, I'm going to be dedicating more of my time to studying for the exam that I think is going to like need the most <laughs> need the most studying for. So I feel like even if that's not, I like Kate was saying, even if not like intentionally taking advantage of that, it definitely impacts my behavior even subconsciously. Okay. So you just brought up one of the topics I wanted to talk about, which is the group project. A lot of professors and teachers think I'm preparing kids for the 21st century when they have to work together and collaborate in a group setting in their work. And so this is exactly the right incentive because it teaches people to learn how to collaborate. Yeah. I, I don't think that works. I, I think that you get to the real world, world and you work in groups with people who all care. And the difference is, in my opinion, you're in a group of four. Your incentive is basically to be the most average contributor to that group. If you contribute the least, you are the least popular person in the group. Everyone kind of hates you because you do your slides at 3 a.m. the night before the presentation. If you are the most engaged in the group, you're kind of just angry the whole time because no one's putting in the same amount of effort as you. You end up doing 80% of the project yourself and you're like adjusting other people's slides and all this stuff. And so the incentive is kind of just to do your own part and then just pray that everyone else does theirs or that the one person does everyone else's part. And then you either get all one grade or, and this is what a lot of professors like to do, is you submit a sheet that's peer reviewing your partners and this person did their work well and this person didn't. But in reality, no one's going to say that the person who didn't do the work didn't do the work. So it doesn't really do anything. But I think group projects are, are for lack of a better term, kind of dumb because no one is really putting in the level of work that they would if they had to do it on their own. Yeah, I agree with what Kate was saying at the end. Professors underestimate the social aspect or group mentality of 20-something-year-olds in terms of like the critiquing each other. I just don't think that's necessarily going to work out. But I do think it was interesting. Recently, we had somebody come into one of my classrooms and talk about how as an employer, the number one thing they look for in an application is collaboration and not what classes you've taken, not how well you did in them. And I would love to know if that is representative because that was that was shocking to me, to be honest. Were you skeptical of that or would you say shocking? Well, a little bit. I'd never really, I guess I'd never talked to anybody about that. I'd always kind of assumed that like the most 
if I was to apply to a research opportunity, that it would be the prior experiences I've had, not ability to collaborate. Like it was uh, talking about like group projects and things. So I don't know. I was a little bit skeptical maybe, but I've also never been in that world or that position. But also I think I hear you both saying that the dynamics of group projects don't really encourage you to collaborate in the way that an employer, it doesn't really match what an employer would ask you to do in a work setting in terms of collaboration. Can I just ask, I'd actually wasn't aware that a lot of professors use the tool that Caden was asking, where you like mutually grade your peers. Is that typical for you too? Um, sometimes. I mean, I wouldn't say all the time, but maybe in 50% of my classes or 50% of the group projects I do. And are people honest? No. I, I don't think so. <laughs> Tell us some stories without naming names about what happens when peers grade each other in group projects. I mean, most of the time as other college students, we I would say most people just give each other the, the 10 out of 10. I don't think most people are very critical of each other. Don't want to make enemies. Don't want to give anybody a less than mediocre grade. I mean, I do the same. I would say like when I'm filling out like an evaluation, I'll always give a pretty high number. I think the issue, the biggest issue that I see in it is... Let's say in a group of four, there's only three other people. So if your grade is different from the other three people, then you can basically say, oh, one of these three people graded me poorly on the peer review. You know why. <laughs> um, because that's the only way that your grade could really be different. So it only really works if you don't know what other people got as a grade. Uh, but I think generally it's just... Well, I don't know how... Caden, are you saying that your evaluations are giving each other an actual grade and those are taken into account by the professor? I, I don't... I have no idea how professors generally use them. Generally, how we do it is the professor will send out or they'll give us a paper and you basically fill out for each group member. Did they do the task for this and this and this? And you give them a ranking, essentially one to five or something like that, or check or no check or something like that. I don't know necessarily whether professors use that data often to adjust grades or whether they kind of just want to get a sense of what's going on in the groups. But but if you don't know that, like, so the three of us are on a group project and you guys get an A and I get a B, I'm smart enough to figure out there's only one way I would have gotten a B and you guys gotten an A, given that the professor doesn't really know who did what, which is one of you guys said something about me in the evaluation. I also think, I think professors assume that no one shares their grades and everyone's so private. And like, honestly, from what I've found, like I have no problem sharing my grades you probably meet 10% of people who are like, I don't talk about my grades and everyone else is immediately telling you exactly what they got on the project. So it goes very quickly to like, you know exactly what's happening. And the professors, I feel like often maybe think that no one talks about their grades in the way that they do. I'm not going to break the code of you know, the student to student code of like, I'm not going to say anything bad about you to the boss, basically. That might be the, the real workplace dynamic. Yeah. And I think professors underestimate that. So let's talk a little bit about what should grading look like? Let's start with with college because you guys are both college students. What should it look like? How should it be done? What should be graded? Like, you know, at the beginning of the semester, you walk into a classroom and the professor says, you're going to be graded on 50% participation. There are going to be five small tests. There's going to be one giant test. There's going to be, you know, like the decisions they make about what matters and what doesn't. What's the right formula? What's the right grade? What's the right, right approach to grading for a professor? I think the biggest thing that changes when you when you get to college, obviously, is the amount of graded assignments decreases dramatically. Very unlikely do you find courses where you have nightly or even weekly assignments like you might in high school. And so your grades are primarily based on you're either in a paper-based course, you're in an exam-based course, or it's some sort of a mix. But generally, your final grade is based on somewhere from five to eight total grades, which means a lot of weight is put on each assignment. So I think something that I've found really valuable is high standards with 
availability of doing extra work to increase your grade. For example, I had a history professor who basically said, you don't know how to write a college history paper yet. It was my, it was an intro history course. I'm not going to name the professor, but he's one of my favorite professors at Hamilton. Taught me more than any other professor that I've had about how to write. And this was first intro history course I took. And he basically said, you're going to get a C on this first paper. Very few of you will get better than a C because you have no idea how to write a college level paper, specifically history. And he said, what I do in my class is if you put in the work afterwards and rewrite the paper, I average the two grades. So the other thing that happened was that that C did not necessarily reflect in the final grade. I think I actually did get a C or a C plus on my first college level history paper. I don't think that actually reflected in the final grade, but the point is I think it's important to have high standards, but to say we're not perfect. You have the chance to, if you show me the effort in revising your work and it's real and you show that you care to then be like, I will average these grades or I'll bump your grade a little bit. I think that's fair and often helpful to keep students engaged. So how many papers did you rewrite for that professor? Well, I rewrote them all because even if you got a B plus and you rewrite it and got an A, your grade on the paper goes to an A minus. So, and it's not always like a full rewrite. Oftentimes you're just making kind of large scale edits to the sections that he gives you pointers on. But the incentive was to rewrite the papers because you could improve your grade. Were there people who didn't write their papers though? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of interesting because I read, I read this book. It was a, it's this journalist who he went to Harvard and he describes this professor at Harvard who said at the beginning of the semester, I'm going to give you two grades in this class. One is your reality-based grade, which is like, this is the quality of your work based on the standards of the profession and the field that you're in. And it's not going to be a great grade. And if I gave you this grade, it would be unfair to you because no one else grades this way and you would have a significantly lower grade. And so I'm going to tell you the second grade, which is the grade that you're going to get on your, you know, on your transcript. And so you'll know what you get when I norm it for what the, what the university expects and what you know, what the norm is among students, but you'll also know how your work really stacks up. There's this kind of like duality that I think that professor was was pointing to. And in some ways, it sounds like you're this history professor that you really liked was like, okay, first, I'm going to tell you really honestly how your work stacks up. And then I'm going to let you work really hard to like to bring up that grade. It, maybe that's a more elegant solution to what the, the Harvard professor is trying to accomplish. By what works for you? What should grading look like? How should grades be weighted? I was actually going to say something very similar. So all my classes this semester are exam-based, not paper-based. So a little different, but my favorite grading system of the ones I'm taking right now is kind of similar to what Caden was saying. The exams are hard. Like I would say I put in a lot of effort to study for them because I know that they will be challenging. But then after the exam, there are corrections allowed where you can get up to, I think it's half of the points back. I think a lot of the reason why professors do like the group exam or like ungraded work is because of like the perceived like stress load. But I think, so I find this to be kind of a good balance because the exam is really demanding, but it's also not incredible. Like there is a way to then improve your grade at the end. So it doesn't feel like the end of the world because it's a really, really challenging exam. I feel like it encourages me to study as much as I can so that I don't have as much to come back from. But then I can like go back and look at what I need to fix for the next exam too, because it's cumulative. So I'll go back, do the corrections and note the places where I have to study more for the next exam. So I, I mean, I think that has worked pretty well. And that's kind of similar to what Caden said, which I think is interesting. Well, you brought up the issue of stress, that your professors are worried about your stress level. 
or say that they're worried about your stress level. Are you guys stressed? Like you're both at demanding selective schools. Do you feel stressed? Do you feel more stressed than you should be? What do you think about... You've read the research on stress and in my article. What do you think about what's the right level of stress? And do you feel like college is too stressful? I think it's really interesting because I was just talking about this with a few peers. And first of all, I think it depends on where you went to high school and what that experience was like. Because when we were comparing stories about college, I think we had really different ideas about how demanding and stressful it was. I think I did a lot of work in high school compared to other people. So I honestly find my workload now probably comparable, some weeks even less, but some people find the workload here incredibly higher. So I think some of it just depends on what your high school workload was like. So I think it's, I don't know, it's hard to compare with people. Can I ask you a question? Part of what I think you're arguing is that you're not stressed now because you experienced a reasonable level of stress in high school, that you learned to cope with stress of doing a significant amount of work. And so the argument that like, if you never face any stress, you don't learn how to deal with stress. And one of the reasons why college is not stressful for you is because you've been through stress before. Right. I think I've always been busy. And I think that's like, sometimes people compare that to stress, if that makes sense. Like my schedule is very, very full, but that doesn't necessarily, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for me. But yeah, I mean, in high school, I was always doing a lot of work and I also had athletics on top of that. So I think I got used to managing it. Then. Okay. I'm going to come back to you and ask you this question. I'm going to ask you to Caden first. Are you below or above what you think your optimal stress level is typically when you're in college? Are you too stressed? Are you just right? You're not stressed enough? I think I was quite often not at my optimal stress level. I was either below my optimal stress level until the point where I was suddenly thrown into being well above my optimal stress level. I was actually loved seeing that bell curve that you had in your article because it's something that I've studied in, honestly in courses as well, which is this optimal stress level that you don't really get if you've never experienced stress before. So the least successful people are the people who are overwhelmed by stress and the people who have no stress at all. And the feeling is that the overwhelming stress makes it difficult to get anything done. And a complete lack of stress gives you no motivation to get anything done. So, no, I don't think I was at optimal stress probably enough during my college career. But we've been talking a lot about grades. I think that's oftentimes what grades do, or at least setting setting standards and setting grade standards is it pushes you towards that optimal level of stress that actually causes you to get the work done and get the work done well. And if your standards are too high, you're so stressed that you can't focus. And if the centers are too low, you you just have no motivation to do work. My same question, optimal stress level, below, above? I agree in part with what Caden was saying, but I think I'm talking more about just my schedule. I think I kind of fluctuate between weeks or periods where since the assignments are more two to three over the course of semester, as opposed to weekly, you go through periods where you don't really have many big assignments or much stress to a week where it's maybe above optimal. So week to week, I don't think I'm always in that optimal area, but I guess overall. Let me ask a a semi-related question, which is mental health on campuses is an issue, right? You can read a lot about how many college students struggle with their mental health and how many of them report being overstressed. Why do you think that is? What causes that? What causes... For the students who you know, you know who stress is a factor in their mental health, why do you think that is? What's causing the stress? I think, one, I think there are a variety of things that affect mental health, especially on college campuses that don't necessarily correlate to how stressed you are. 
I also think that probably a lot of people find themselves outside of that optimal stress zone. And I think that being overstressed or understressed probably has a significant impact on mental health. I know like the times where I have nothing to do and no reason to like really go outside or like those are the times where I often feel just like there's not much going on. Right. And so that's kind of an easy way to spiral into a mental health crisis just as much as I have so much going on and I can't handle it. So I think that potentially optimal stress levels not only help your productivity, but have the potential to just keep you focused on other things and and limit the detriments that especially kind of college campus style mental health issues can have. Being busy is beneficial for like being busy and feeling like a little bit of like pressure to get things done is actually kind of good for you. There's a lot of research that feeling useful is like one of the like prime components of being happy. And so, yeah, I think that when you're in your optimal stress zone, you probably feel the most useful because you're doing things that are that need to get done. And I think that has a far larger impact on mental health than probably a lot of people imagine. Thoughts, Maya? Yeah, I think that a college campus also, or at least this is my take on it, that it's just mental health and stress and anxiety is like so much more talked about and like normalized here than it ever was in high school to a point where I think that you're going to you're going to see so much more like diagnoses of that as soon as you get to a college campus and that's not necessarily I don't think a cause and effect so much as like the correlation of being in that environment I don't think it's I think some of those new diagnoses aren't necessarily new they're just once you get there and it's all around you and it's talked about more like it's more sought after I don't know. It's really hard to dissect like how much of that is a cause of like this actual like stress of the college and how much is just the new environment. Do you ever feel like people, adults around you on campus say, oh, you must be so stressed. You must be struggling when actually you don't feel that way. Yeah, that's part of what I'm saying is it's much, much more talked about all around you. So I feel like it's kind of internalized in some way. In other words, if people are always suggesting to you that you must be you must be stressed out and struggling, you start to wonder whether you're stressed out and struggling. Is that what you mean? Or I mean, maybe. I don't feel like that personally, but I can see that as a possibility. What I wanted to jump in with is that I also think that on college campuses, there's, well, specifically on college campuses, kind of like the ones that Maya and I spend our time on, there's almost a culture of like, you shouldn't be having fun you should be working all the time. And I think those people are the most miserable people in college. And people are having like far less fun because they're so stressed. And I think that at that point, it just becomes a stress spiral. So I think like it's important to remember that like, yeah, college is like very, very important, but there's a level of work that causes you to decrease your productivity. So taking breaks is really important. I mean, professors say this all the time. You have to take breaks. You have to take breaks. But they're actually right because the longer you go, 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 go on your schoolwork and the less time you spend socializing with other people and all these other things that you get on a college campus, the more likely you are to push yourself into that outside of your optimal stress zone and cause problems for yourself mentally as well. So I think, yeah, working hard is like super important, but there's something to be said for like, it's all a balance, which I think is what everyone tries to find in college is that balance. I think I hear you make an argument for work hard, play hard. Yeah. I mean, you said those words. I just like to make that clear. I was trying to be slightly tongue in cheek, but. But yeah, yes, essentially, yes. To the extent that that's legal to say here. 
All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to put you guys in charge of some things and let you make some decisions here. So I'm going to give you a series of jobs. Your first job is you are the superintendent of a school district. And so you get to set grading policy for all the teachers in the high schools in your school district. You can do anything you want to, to make grading optimally fair, motivating, balance the right level of stress. Probably want to give some time to this decision, but you don't have that luxury. What are you going to do? What is your high school's grading policy be? The first thing I'm going to do is, is I'm going to standardize by department because I think that you have to have different grading policies in different subjects. I think that's just like, it has to happen. You can't try to put one grading policy in a math classroom and have the same grading policy in an English classroom. But what I think is difficult is when students take different courses from different teachers in what they see as the same department, expect similar grading policies and come up with different standards within that department. So I think that focusing on the departments individually is the important part. And I think the most important thing is like students need to know where they're at. There's so much fear of like putting a number to something like students should know the percentage that they got on an assignment. And then I think, yes, you should be given an opportunity to potentially rectify that if it didn't go your way. But there should be at least a standard to the point where you should always know where you are. You should always be able to communicate that to your teacher. You should be able to say, I think I am slightly behind where I need to be. I think I'm right on track. I think I'm even a little bit ahead of the game. And I think that brings students more towards that optimal stress level that I think is key. When you say standardized, do you mean that like all the teachers in the math department were going to calculate the median grade that they give and the standard deviation? Is that what you mean by standardized? And or would that information be useful to you as a student? I was going to say that I think that's like super helpful for me because since it's not standardized in terms of like what is a quote acceptable grade, it's hard to tell in some classes, everybody is getting a 95. And in some classes, the average is around an 80. So you, maybe you receive back like an 89, how good of a grade that is. It's like so hard to tell sometimes. So I think it's really, really helpful when I can get the stats back after an exam, especially like the first exam with a professor, when you're still trying to figure out what type of grader they are, what type of expectations they have. I think that's really helpful in knowing where I stand in their eyes, because not that students at the top should stop working, obviously, but knowing you're on the right track versus seeing that everybody's in that same boat, I think like would affect my behavior differently. I agree with Maya that I really like when professors do that. I also really like statistics. So it's just always interesting to kind of look at the stats in that way. But I think it also keeps teachers and professors accountable because you're basically saying, here are these exam grades. The average was a C. And suddenly students as well, let's say parents, if parents get this information and the teachers themselves can say, okay, did students randomly do very poorly on this exam or did I miss something? Did I not teach them something that they needed for this exam? Am I writing exams that aren't applicable to the coursework that we're working on? There are all these things that, and I think teacher accountability is something that is like super important. That's like very rarely talked about, but there are all these things that the stats can give you that can't be given in any other way to keep teachers accountable. So I think that that's sure throw that in my what I would do is every exam and every paper should have statistics attached to it when you get your grade back. I think it's just better for everyone involved. So I'm hearing clarity early and often on grades that like it, it's not helpful when someone doesn't give you a clear grade at the outset because they're trying to take pressure off you. It actually puts pressure on you. 
you'd rather know early, you'd rather know clearly, and descriptive statistics, context statistics would be useful for you as a student and also would tacitly hold teachers and professors accountable for making sure that they were that there was some parity and comparability and standardization across the way that they grade. Yeah, I think if I could also just add one more thing that the numbers help with is like I think teachers play a role in especially for let's say like bottom bottom quartile students on average. Our teachers play a role in keeping those kids on track obviously, but I think that as a teacher if you see that number and you see the number attached to it and you say okay this student is in the 10th percentile on this assignment i need to send the student an email right and i need to say whether you're saying is everything all right at home or like this and this and that do you want to set up a meeting it's a lot easier for a student to say yes i'd love to set up a meeting than for the student to reach out individually and say obviously this went poorly uh, i'd like to set up a meeting obviously that shows some student initiative but i think that especially in younger students it's really important for a teacher to keep an eye on that. And I think the numbers can only help. It mutes the signal for teachers too, which is if they give everyone roughly the same grade, even if they don't intend it to be a cause of them to be less aware of the students who need them to step in and say, what's going on here? Let's address this. So in addition to muting the signal for students and for society, like it mutes the signal for teachers too. I think I hear you saying. That's super interesting. Okay, the second job I'm going to give you is you're the Secretary of Education now. There isn't really any job in the country where you can make a policy decision on uh, SAT and or ACT, right? That's it's a fairly decentralized decision. But let's just assume as a Secretary of Education, you can make a decision for public universities. Should the SAT be required? What other sorts of testing should be required? Design a college admission testing regime or lack of regime for fairness, equity, meritocracy, et cetera. I think Caden went first on the last one, Maya. So maybe you, you start on this job. Yeah, it's such a hard question because I think that there should be some sort of standardized test in the process because, I mean, like we were talking about, every school, there's no standardization in terms of what is the average grade in schools. Like down to a teacher level, there's no goal median score on an exam. And then that escalates into a whole school. Some schools average is going to be much higher than others. And that's not standardized for it all. I love the kids that I teach. I want to help them get into college. I'm going to give them all A's. And every, every school is doing that. Right. So I don't think that like looking at just the GPA is really standard enough. But I, I don't know if it should... I mean, I personally, I consider myself a very strong test taker comparatively to like what I know. Whereas I know a lot of people really struggle with test taking. So they would have much different opinions than I would on this. And I do understand that. But um, for me, I think that it was a strength. So I also have that opinion where like I know it would have helped me. Some people would say that the solution to that is to give more tests. Like, you know, in England, you take your A-levels and you take them in, I'm not sure how, you know, like six different subject areas, right? So you have lots and lots of tests. The idea would be like, if you crashed in any test, it evens out. They're more, they're more specific to what you learned as opposed to the sort of like allegedly generalizable test, which is the SAT. Yeah. I mean, and that's interesting because in elementary school, middle school, we had the like ELA math standard New York state testing, but that ended up being optional for most of my experience. And a lot of kids would opt out of those. So that's an interesting idea if that was more mandatory throughout the entire elementary middle school experience, whether that would impact people's thoughts on taking the SAT after you've had that many years of standardized testing experience. And interestingly, I mean, I think a lot of people would say that, oh, well, the schools reacted to that by putting all their eggs in the English and math basket because they're worried about their own accountability and science and history don't get taught as much or as well because they're never, they're never really assessed. So do your best to sketch out what the ideal 
college selection admission testing regime or testing not regime might look like? I think it involves some sort of exam similar to the SAT. You mentioned like the GSEs in the UK. GCSE, yeah. Which I think is a better system. The US kind of has like, like you remember like SAT subject exams, which like no one really took, no one really cared about what you got on those exams. But I think it's a much better system because not only does it show what kids are interested in and what kids do better in, but it's also like the SAT is... It's not perfect. I think it's something that needs that we need to have, but it's not a perfect exam, all multiple choice languages. Like it's by no means perfect, but I think that some level of standardization has to be, happen, especially when you talk to the average student at a college or university in the U.S. and and it's like, oh, my GPA was a five point four on a five point scale with this and this and this, which I think is also something that needs to be standardized, which is the GPA system in the U.S. because no one knows what these numbers mean. You're either on a 100% scale like we were in high school, or you're on a 4.0 scale, or you're on a 5.0 scale, or you're on a 4.0 scale and you got a 4.3. And it's like... Advanced classes are included and advanced classes are not included, right? Right. So I think I think weighting GPAs is actually really important. Our high school, I don't think we weighted GPAs at all. No weighted GPA, no class ranking in your high school. Right. I think there's arguments to be made for and against class ranking, Generally, my opinion is is probably for it, but I understand that that's kind of one point of like competition where I kind of understand where people are coming from, where they don't want to be like, like somehow I'm ranked 400th in my class. And it pits you against people. Right. Or would you solve it if you only listed the class rank of the top 20% and everyone else was like below the 20th percentile? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure what the answer of that is, but I think that GPA weighting is really important because you basically have... For example, you could have a student who took a bunch of super hard classes in high school, did really well on the standardized exam that no college really cares about anymore. And suddenly they are they look exactly the same as the person who took the easiest classes possible and didn't do as well in them still and have the same GPA. And like there's no way to differentiate these two students where they dropped out of the harder class to take an easier class where they get a better grade. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, I think, is where like that is the great inflation that really matters, as opposed to teachers giving, I mean, it's important, right, teachers giving high grades. But I think the great inflation that matters is when you compare students with no way of seeing really to the extent which courses they took, which courses they didn't. You're comparing, but there's no calibration of the comparison. Well, listen, if I were to go back to high school, I would have, arguably, I would have taken no AP courses. If I'm going to try to play the system as well as I could, right? Granted, I would have probably, like, there's a culture of wanting to challenge yourself, right? But if you want to gain the system in high school, and even in college for that matter... If you're going to be purely pragmatic, you would have not taken all your AP classes, not taken advanced right. math. You take the advanced classes in only things that you know you're going to do really well in. You take the regular classes mm-hmm. in things that you are average to below average in. Interesting. And overall, your GPA comes out to higher than it would be if you just decided, oh, I'm going to challenge myself and and try to do the best that I can. I think that cheats students who want to succeed in things that are challenging and want to challenge themselves in school because they come out on the bottom. Our high school had a policy, I'm pretty sure, where if you started in one of the advanced classes and you decided to drop it, you automatically got 100 for that semester. And I know people that did that on purpose to get 100 in the normal classes. They would register for an advanced 
drop it and end up with 100 in the um, regions level courses. So like there's just no standardization with the weighting there either. So I think what I hear you saying, to go back to the like, what should testing policy be? There should be some objective assessment. The SAT is probably a flawed measure. We can all recognize that. But we should probably come up with an improved measure as opposed to dropping the SAT is kind of the net. And then lots of thoughts on just weighting of grades in high school and this the perverse incentives of the way that grading happens. Anything you want to add there, Maya? No, I feel like we said the same thing is that there should be some standardized test. It's just hard to say what that really should be. Yeah. I feel like there obviously should be some changes, but it's hard to say what those should be. Awesome. So we have used up an hour talking about grading and assessment, and I'm always grateful to have an hour of your time. It's a treat for me. Joining me today has been Maya Lamov and Caden Lamov, my children. Maya is a second year at McAllister College and Caden is a senior should we call you a senior, Caden? Is that- you can call me whatever you'd like to. Practically graduated at Hamilton College. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks for having us. Now I'm late for International Econ. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at, at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.